So what it means to be male or female, you know, or be a man, be a woman, be a boy, whatever, in every culture is different. So I might choose to express that in all kinds of different ways to signify it. But these, there seems to be something about gender identity, like core me, that seems very intractable. And beyond kind of simplistic binaries, this felt sense, it seems very resistant to therapy, drugs, you know, shock treatments. Like once you've kind of coalesced around this identity that you have, it doesn't seem to go away, which I think is quite fascinating. And in, in many people, it appears very young, like three, four or five. This is the Dr. John Berardi Show, a podcast that seeks important lessons in a seemingly unlikely place amid competing points of view. In each episode, I look at fascinating, sometimes even controversial topics through the minds of divergent thinkers. And together we tease out unifying threads from ideas that may feel irreconcilable. Today's topic, Illuminating the Sex and Gender Spectrum, Part 2. In Part 1, we covered the complexities of biological sex, discussing how, whereas in the past sex was viewed as binary, it's now viewed as more of a spectrum, with, if we need to make hardline categories, at least three of them, female, male, and intersex. And we discussed how this spectrum is an example of biological diversity seen across many species in chromosomes, gonads, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, and hormone levels. Here in part two, we'll spend a little more time on gender, discussing where our felt sense of who we are as quote-unquote masculine or feminine, or both, or neither, comes from, and what we can learn from those folks whose biological sex never matched their gender identity. Along the way, we'll talk with a few interesting guests, including a male-to-female trans person who served in the Marine Corps, was part of Bill Clinton's security detail, and who once bench-pressed 738 pounds, the weight of a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. In part one of this series, Elena Hardy helped us understand a little more about genetics and sex differentiation. Here, I wanted to bring her back with a proper introduction. I learned to read at like two and my mom figured out that I was like obsessed with reading. So like literally every day after school, starting in like grade two, she would take me to the library and sit there while I read books. And then the library would close and then we would leave. Elena and I have been friends and colleagues for almost 20 years. By training and occupation, she's now a technologist and data scientist. But all those hours in the library and the diverse interests they brought likely turned her into a polymath. She's a self-taught robotics expert and biochemist who built her own robotics and molecular biology labs, like in her own backyard. She also graduated from Singularity University and went on to become faculty there one of the few without a terminal degree like a PhD. She's a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She's a co-author on the book Genetics, the Universe Within, which my name is on also. And I have to tell you, stacked up against all that, her gender identity is one of the less interesting things about her. But our conversation really did help me learn more about where the science of genetics overlaps with the realities of personhood. I asked Elena, who transitioned more than 20 years ago, how she self-identifies. I say that I am a queer transsexual woman. 
I think that that means I have a very clear female gender identity. I have since I was like two or three. It's never been in question for me. I am mostly attracted to other women with very few exceptions. Like my partner is another woman, a cis woman or queer trans woman. I don't know. You might feel this too. Like the older I get, the less I give a shit. I don't know how else to say it. So you're not being a great activist here, but you're just like, I'm just trying to live my life. (laughs) I've done my activism. It's time for the kids. They're much better at it. Now, again, when Elena says gender identity, it means this deep sense of herself as a man or a woman. Here's how Dr. Krista Scott Dixon, former professor of gender studies, describes the identity phenomenon. When I say identity, I'm talking about the felt sense of yourself as something. Now, how you express that will be much more culturally determined, right? Like what being a boy looks like in in one culture will be different. And when I used to teach, I used to use this great slide from like pre-revolutionary France with male aristocrats, like with wigs and lacy collars and high heels and little frilly jackets and stuff like that. So, but they were manly men. They had swords and stuff like that. So they, they probably thought they were like the bomb back then. <laughs> <laughs> Look <laughs> at know? what a man I am. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Because <laughs> I'm the peacock of the species, right? Like who knows, that was maybe the idea. So what it means to be male or female, you know, or be a man, be a woman, be a boy, whatever, in every culture is different. So I might choose to express that in all kinds of different ways to signify it. But there seems to be something about gender identity, like core me, that seems very intractable and beyond kind of simplistic binaries, this felt sense. It seems very resistant to therapy, drugs, you know, shock treatments. Like once you've kind of coalesced around this identity that you have, it doesn't seem to go away, which I think is quite fascinating. And in, in many people, it appears very young, like three, four or five This is almost precisely how Elena describes her experience. Part of this is not reconstructed from my memory. Part of this is reconstructed from my parents' retelling. I remember age five or six, couldn't figure out why people were calling me a boy. Like, it just didn't make sense to me. And so my parents just, or my mom, just said that, like, I I was always like this. But I remember the thing that stood out to me was people calling me a boy. And I was like, no, I'm not a boy. I remember even saying that to some drunk guy at my grandfather's bar. And then they made fun of me. Every time I would pop in to visit my grandfather, they would like make fun of me for that. This is a theme that's come up often in my conversations. The people I've spoken with who've transitioned realized fairly early that they didn't fit into the box that was checked on their birth certificate. That's very different from my experience, for example. I left the hospital designated male. From there, I was treated like a boy, and that felt normal and natural for me. So I didn't have to think much about my own sex and gender. But trans folks have to think about it a lot. Even when they aren't consciously wondering why they're different, the steady discomfort of feeling a mismatch between their sex and their gender weighs heavily. This raises the question of whether genetics, which we discussed in the last episode, can help us understand why they're different. After all, we have markers for things like breast cancer or colon cancer, eye color or hair color. I think one of the things that people don't understand when they think about genetics is that they think of this code, and I'm going to be able to look at this code, 
and I'm going to be able to like shine light through it and project it on the wall. And I'm going to see exactly what the person is going to look like. It doesn't work like that. Like switches are always getting flipped off and on and knobs are getting turned up and down. And I think it's really important to say like, is, is this genetic? I don't know. The code is genetic, but there are signaling pathways that happen independent of this. It's just an incredibly complicated system. So what Elena is saying is that there's likely no chance we'll find a single gene or even a few genes that tell us whether someone will be trans or not. Dr. Harley, who we talked to in the first episode, agrees. The way the genetics is, it probably won't. It's like height. If you're in the range, we're never going to be able to predict height to the centimeter or the, or the millimeter. The genetics is just one thing. You try an environment and then there's the societal environment and diet and all sorts of other things, that um, environmental things that might come into play. It's never going to be a, a useful clinical marker, I don't think. Which might be a good thing. Sure, it might be easier if we could pinpoint in our chromosomes exactly where our feelings of gender come from. If we could do what Elena said, project our genetic code on the wall and understand exactly why we are who we are. I know a part of me always thinks that it might make us more accepting of people with sex and gender and orientation differences. Or, as Dr. Krista posits, Or would they try to fix it, you know? This made me think back to the early 90s and the search for the quote-unquote gay gene. In a 1993 New York Times story, a spokesman for the human rights campaign said that this kind of research would increase public support for lesbian and gay rights. Yet Darrell Yates Rist, co-founder of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, had a different take. Here's what he said. I don't think it's an interesting study. What do we gain by finding out there's a homosexual gene? Nothing except an attempt to identify those people who have it and then open them up to all sorts of experimentation to change them. As science tends to do, it marches on in the name of knowledge and progress. I'm sure in a few years, this series will feel quaint and uninformed because scientific discoveries are being made at breakneck speed and will likely explain a good deal of how our brains develop a gender identity, one that either matches our biological sex or one that doesn't. And of course, social scientists will continue to help refine our understanding as we figure out how to situate these new discoveries into our evolving culture. One thing I was interested in in the making of this series was the evolving terminology. Of course, words have power and have to change as our understanding expands. I asked Dr. Krista about the language used in modern gender conversations. Yeah, there's all kinds of different terms, really, um, that people use in all different contexts. Uh, gender queer, gender fluid, gender fucker, non-binary. Um, if you're indigenous, maybe the term two-spirit you feel is applicable to you. So there's lots and lots of terms that generally in some way refer to the idea that you're not picking a side. It's not even so much that you're living in this weird void. It's more like you've identified another way to be that is equivalently resonant and real. And it means different things to different people. For some people, it means being playful, you know, and not settling for other people, it means being more fluid. Like there's different connotations that individuals have. If this feels a little confusing, I get it. 
However, if you're not really sure the quote-unquote right words to use for or with someone, you might consider asking. And so this is where we get into the issue of really just asking people, how would you define yourself? What term would you use? Um, and, and going with whatever terminology they use, rather than me coming up to them and saying, well, I think that you should be blah, blah. Although we should all be a little more thoughtful about how we ask. When I was teaching at the start of the year, I would read out the attendance list and I would say, please tell me how to pronounce your name. Because, I mean, I taught at York University in Toronto, which was very multicultural. Please tell me how to pronounce your name and tell me if this is the name that you actually want me to use, because the name that you enrolled in might be your formal name. Maybe you want to go by something else. So that's an example of when you might ask that kind of thing. If I'm just interacting with you and you're serving me coffee at the Starbucks or I don't know, I, you know, you're <laughs> driving my bus or, you know, you're, you're, you're engaging with me in some social role where me knowing your gender or your gender expression is completely irrelevant to me then I don't care. I'm not, I'm not going to ask. It's not important. When it is important, uh, so for example, uh, let's say you are doing an interview and you want to know what pronouns to use or what name or how they want to be described, that's a great time to ask. If you're about to have sex with a person and you're curious about like what you're going to discover physiologically, that might be a great time to be curious, you know, or maybe just wait to be surprised. It's totally, you know, that's, that's fun. <laughs> But basically, you know, I see it on a very need-to-know basis. And so to circle back to when is it not okay to ask? Well, it's not okay to ask a random stranger whether they have a vagina. I have a female gender identity, but I also don't fit neatly in that box. This is, again, Janae Kroc, who I briefly introduced in the first part of this series. I also describe myself as being non-binary and gender fluid, meaning that, you know, I don't fit neatly within this binary system of gender between, you know, with just male and female. And then gender fluid, meaning there's some degree of fluidity to my gender and how I feel on a day-to-day basis. And I know that all sounds like, can easily sound to people outside of this, like, oh my gosh, that's just crazy. This person's, you know, lost it. But I mean, my entire life, I've known this since I was five or six years old and always had these issues with my gender. Like the thing is, as humans, we're incredibly complex, we're incredibly complicated, and the idea that, you know, we're expected to all fit neatly in in a couple different boxes or that every male is the same or every female is the same is really ludicrous when you stop and really think about it. And I'm just someone who, however my brain was, you know, developed or, you know, however my genetics worked out, but I'm just someone who doesn't fit neatly in one box and I'm finally at a point in my life where I'm totally okay with that. And, uh, you know, I just live my life in a way that makes me feel comfortable. And if people have difficulty understanding that, that's fine. And I'll do what I can to help people understand. But I I don't worry about being judged for that anymore. Maybe at this point, I should better introduce Janae. Janae Kroc is a transgender woman previously known as Matt Kroc. Now, if you don't follow powerlifting or bodybuilding, this name may not mean anything to you. However, if you do, the name Matt Kroc is almost mythical. You see, Janae was a legend in the sport of powerlifting, known for her training intensity, mental toughness, and ability to overcome numerous serious injuries. She was known for her quote-unquote manliness. As Matt, the legend began while serving as a U.S. Marine from 1991 to 1995 and continued after being selected to serve as part of President Clinton's security team. 
Later on, the legend grew after squatting 1,014 pounds, bench pressing 738 pounds, and deadlifting 810 pounds to capture the all-time powerlifting world record in the 220-pound weight class. These are, of course, epic, superhuman numbers. There's even an exercise named after Janae called the Croc Row because of her legendary 13 one-arm rows with a specially made 300-pound dumbbell. The irony, of course, is that Janae was a trans person operating in areas, the military, powerlifting, that have historically taken the gender binary very seriously. To underscore this, 11 years ago, in 2010, an article ran on the most popular strength training and bodybuilding website in the world, T-Nation. That article was titled simply, Matt Croc is more man than you. And I have some history with that article. So I, I want to start by telling you a story that you probably don't know. So you are actually single-handedly responsible for me meeting one of my most trusted colleagues and one of my best friends, Nate Green. I don't know. Do you know where this is? Do you know where this is going or no? No, I'm not sure. No. Okay. So it was 2010 and there was an article on T Nation by by Nate Green, uh, which you might recall. And I hadn't met Nate yet. And the title was Matt Croc is more man than you. Do you remember this? Oh my gosh, I do. I do remember that article. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to unpack this in a minute. But after I read that piece, I looked for Nate's email and I dropped him a line praising the article, despite maybe ironic title. It was the first sort of Esquire-esque kind of character study that I'd seen done on T Nation or anywhere, really, like in bodybuilding and powerlifting magazines. And I was just super impressed with the storytelling and the writing. At that moment, I was like, I got to work with this guy, Nate. Uh, and so I reached out, I offered him a job. We met at a conference shortly thereafter. He took it. And then fast forward to today, we've been colleagues and close friends for a decade now. Oh, that's so funny. It's small world, huh? Just like how past crosser. And that, that, that's, that's really cool. I've always been super curious, like if you A, remember the piece and B, what comes up for you when you think about some of these old stories about the legend of Matt Kroc? You know, it's interesting because the thing is at the time, you know, that's how I was perceived, right? I was perceived as this like uber alpha male. And, and the reality of it is that is a part of who I am. I mean, my personality, I mean, I'm hyper competitive. The funny thing is even being trans, that environment, I was always very comfortable there. And I did well in those scenarios, but I still had all the gender issues. And even when that article came out, you know, obviously I was well aware of being trans at that point. And I was already out to a lot of people. And by 2010, I was already out to pretty much my entire family. I was out to like Dave Tate and Jim Wendler to lead and most of the athletes I competed with. By the way, Dave Tate and Jim Wendler were running Elite FTS, one of the biggest strength training and powerlifting equipment companies in the world. And Janae, back then Matt, was sponsored by them. Janae tells me that Dave and Jim used to get a kick out of these articles, the ones hyper-masculinizing their friend who was in the middle of a gender transition. So it was known like in the elite circles, like I was very open about it, as open as I felt I could be without completely outing myself. And the only reason for the people that aren't familiar with why I kind of stayed closeted is because of my three sons. 
we were worried about how that might affect them, you know, like with their peers, their coaches, their teachers at school. And I just didn't want them to have to deal with all that backlash. And I mean, then of course, there was some concern about how are some of my sponsors going to react? How is the fan base going to react? But that wasn't as important to me as my sons were. And so that's why I was like out to my friends and family and a lot of the other competitors, but not 100% out. Now, when listening to Janae's story, one would be tempted to feel like there's some sort of irony between the very quote-unquote masculine stories being told about her and the very feminine aspects of her core identity. I guess the interesting part, though, is that that is part of who I am. Even though my identity was always female, I, I do have very masculine aspects to my personality and still do. In that environment, you know, even like being in the Marines, but growing up in sports year-round and all those things, those were always welcoming places for me and places I felt very comfortable. It's interesting dynamics, you know, the, all the different aspects of my personality and how that worked out. I was able to exist in that world and thrive there, but it was also very difficult for me, you know, knowing all this and then hiding a big part of who I am. And it got to be a really big burden, um, you know, there towards the end. And then I got outed in 2015. That's when someone posted a YouTube video showing Janae dressed as a woman when most of the public knew her as Matt, and it went viral, leading to her being dropped from a few sponsorships. It also led to a tremendous amount of vitriol and hate. I've been threatened online a number of times. There was a hashtag going around for a while, supposedly marking LGBT people for murder. And I had those hashtags appear on some of my social media stuff people hashtagging my posts with it. And then I had people threaten to kill me, like harassing me in DMs and stuff like that and threatening to kill me and stuff like that. Just so you know, this is pretty common for openly trans people. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. For now, it's important to realize that this is just one of the many trade-offs trans people know they'll have to make to live openly in a way that's consistent with who they are and how they want to live. And if they manage to avoid violence, to stay alive, sometimes this dark cloud does have a silver lining. At least there was one for Janae. You know, initially it was a lot of turmoil and kind of turned my life upside down, but it was also, it took a big weight off my shoulders too. And finally being able to come forward and be out about everything was, was, was really nice. Knowing the backstory here, I got to wondering, prior to transitioning, was Matt Kroc more of a man than me because, quote-unquote, trying to be manly was Janae's first attempt at dealing with a persistent, uncomfortable, non-conforming gender identity? The funny thing is, it actually took me a long time to figure that out. I'm glad you brought all that up because that was the initially, that was the thought. For being trans and to get hormone therapy and to have like surgery and stuff, we have to get approval from psychologists. You can't just out and say, oh, hey, I want hormones, at least not if you're going to purchase them legally or get them through a doctor. So I had to start seeing a therapist to get access to hormones. And then that was the theory that was initially proposed. Oh, the reason why you joined the Marines, the reason why you're involved in all this uber alpha male type stuff is fighting against who you really are. But I get the sense that Janae feels this is a bit of an oversimplification based on the gender binary. It kind of sounds plausible. And, um, and so at first I kind of bought into that and I bought into this idea that, okay, if I'm going to transition, I need to be, you know, the kind of girl that social media and society pushes on us, you know, the stereotypically feminine, smaller, you know, less muscular, 
all these things. I, I had originally planned on dropping like 150 pounds and doing all these things. And I just kind of accepted that, that, oh, I was, you know, I was doing all these things to, to compensate. Yeah. Fighting against, you know, pushing this other envelope in order to hide who I really was. So she figured she might as well go all the way girl. So I dropped 72 pounds and yeah, there's certain things I like about it, but I'm really frustrated with all the strength I'm losing, all the muscle I'm losing. Like I've worked so hard for all these gains. And and then after getting on female hormones, watching my lifts literally plummet like hundreds of pounds. I mean, it was just ridiculous. I could not believe how fast I was losing strength. There were certain aspects like, oh, it's nice. You know, I'm down this many pounds. I'm wearing this now. I look more you know, stereotypically feminine in certain ways, but I was feeling lots of frustration with all the lost performance. So I was like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? If I'm a woman and this is how I identify, why isn't this making me feel better? So then there was this back and forth. Like I would, I started and stopped transition between how, I think, I'm trying to think when I very first time I started hormones, I, I went back and forth, like probably eight, 10 times or something over. Like so the next. meaning that you started hormones and then stopped or you yeah started, stopped, it would lose weight, gain weight, lose weight, gain weight. And what actually helped me a ton was after I came out, I started getting closer to a lot of the women in the strength training world. And I had known a lot of them from competing in the same competitions, but I wasn't really, really close to any of them. But then after I was out, I, I got to be real close and had a lot of good conversations with a lot of different girls. And it was like light bulb, you know, it's like, oh my God, they feel exactly the same way I do. There was this struggle between wanting to be bigger, wanting to be stronger, wanting to increase their performance and all this pressure from society, from your friends, from all the people around you. Oh, don't get too big. Oh, you look manly. Oh, that's not ladylike. And so there's all these other pressures going against what you're passionate about and what you really enjoy. But finally talking with them, it was like, oh my God, now everything makes total sense. You know, yeah, I have a female gender identity, but I'm just someone who's also passionate about strength and strength training the same way these girls were. Yeah, so they so weren't from, necessarily yeah. struggling with gender issues. They were struggling with society's forced expectations around femininity and the exactly. appropriate pursuits for women. And mm-hmm. hmm. So that really helped me come to terms with everything on my own and And beyond that, I just realized too, like I don't fit neatly in one box. When I spoke with Elena, her experiences were a bit different. So I'll talk about me as a trans person and, you know, my kind of trans people. So there's a concept called dysmorphia, which is like an internal mismatch in your mind with like your body. And people have that in all sorts of different ways. Like I think most people probably have it to some degree, like the way they perceive their body is not the way their body is or vice versa. This is well described in the literature, actually. You're a thin woman, for example, but you can't see yourself as anything other than too large or over fat. You're a muscular man, for example, but you can't see yourself as anything other than thin and weak. Imagine moving through life with this intense sense of dysmorphia all the time. You can never get away from it because you can't leave your body, right? you're there. So you develop a disconnect as a survival mechanism. It's not one of those things where you can just tell people, you know, you should learn to love your body because that's like, stop being depressed. This doesn't work like that. I I think one of the things is understanding that there's like all of this standard body angst that people have, 
plus this extra layer of body angst. I transitioned long, 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 long ago, but I had my final surgery like 10 years after that, which was still, whatever, 20 years ago. I did not realize, I was just telling my partner this a couple of weeks ago, I had this surgery, like the final surgery, and I woke up and my anxiety was gone. And if you had asked me before surgery if I had anxiety, I would have said no. There was this baseline of anxiety that had existed since I was a child that disappeared, 100% disappeared with this surgery. I bring this up specifically to say this is a real thing. The way people feel about their bodies is a real thing. So that's one of the things I would say. The anxiety thing is another thing. Like there's this constant, like you're in a bad relationship, for example, or, you know, you hate your job and everything else in your life is going to suffer because of that baseline of anxiety or discomfort or displeasure or, you know, depression or whatever. Once you remove yourself from that job or from the bad relationship, suddenly things open up to you. To be honest, I'm not sure I can imagine the gender dysmorphia that Elena is describing. Most people probably can't. But I can imagine what it's like to be in a destructive relationship. And when a friend or family member is experiencing that, or a terrible work environment, or suffering existential angst, because I've experienced all three, my instinct is compassion. Yours probably is too. Yet, do we both show up that way when hearing stories like Elena's or Janae's? When meeting people who don't conform to typical gender roles or presentations? And if not, I've been wondering, how can we do better? We'll talk more about that after the break. Okay, we're going to take a little break here so I can talk about one of our sponsors, Precision Nutrition, the world's largest nutrition education, coaching, and software company. And I wanted to start by telling you that Precision Nutrition is kind of different. That's because their programs uniquely address the needs of individuals across the sex and gender spectrum, as well as the age spectrum, ability spectrum, and more. Their core philosophy is centered around something they call deep health. This is the idea that one can't truly be quote-unquote healthy unless all dimensions of health are in sync. So it's not just about how we eat or move, although those are important. It's about a multi-dimensional thriving of the whole person in the context of their whole life. If it sounds deep, well, that's the point. And it's what's made them the biggest nutrition coaching, education, and software company in the world. So if you'd like to learn more about Precision Nutrition's renowned coaching program for clients, or Precision Nutrition's number one rated nutrition certification program for fitness, wellness, and healthcare professionals, please visit www.precisionnutrition.com JB, my initials, where you can check out PN's programs. And because you're a listener, get early access and a nice discount. Again, that's www.precisionnutrition.com JB. All right, back to the show. One thing we've sort of glossed over so far is that it's hard to be a gender non-conforming person in 2021. 
Of course, we did talk about some of the hate and harassment that Janae got when being outed in 2015. But for someone trans, it's ongoing. All my IDs have been changed over to female and and um but yeah, that's always a concern, right? Like it's for me, anytime I travel, I try to make sure I'm as, you know, quote unquote passable as I can be, just so I don't get hassled at security, just so I don't get hassled if I have to use the, the bathroom at the airport, which I pretty much always have to. <laughs> and um there's a lot of trans people who part of their daily strategy just for living life is to use the restroom right before they leave home plan their stops, plan their time so they don't have to use a restroom just so they won't have to be either harassed or assaulted. It's this stuff that most people never have to think about, but being afraid to even use a restroom because you'll be assaulted. The word that Janae uses here, passing, it's a loaded word. It's a term of convenience, but no one seems to like it. It's used to mean that when she's out in public, she can quote unquote pass for female that her appearance looks conventionally female enough to not warrant a second glance. She hates the word, though. Passing is used as a term to mean that you can blend in. That, like, if I'm out on the street, someone would see me as a, you know, same as a cis female, wouldn't know that I'm trans. Now, in case you're not familiar, the term cis that Janae uses here is the opposite of trans. These terms come from Latin, where cis means, quote-unquote, on this side, and trans means, quote-unquote, on the other side. In other words, if your biological sex and gender are on the same side, you're cis. If your sex and gender are on opposite sides, you're trans. But back to passing. And I hate that for a couple reasons. One, because that reinforces the idea that in order to be a woman, everyone has to look the same, be the same, and we have to fit this stereotypically feminine ideal which is not only harmful for trans women, but also very harmful for a lot of women if you're not someone who looks that way. But then also this idea of passing, because what's the opposite of passing? Failing. So if you don't pass, that means you're failing at being a woman. Obviously, that brings up a lot of other issues. So say you're a non-passing trans person, woman or man. You can be subject to violence like on a daily basis. It can be a very dangerous world. And then on top of that, like the things that I really hope to be able to help with are like, you know, parents abandoning their children, kicking them out of their homes, throwing them into the streets and saying, don't come back until you're not trans anymore. As if you could just snap your fingers and change that. I'm just hoping that every time I do a show like yours or every time I'm into anything that's in the media that even if there's just one mind that changes because of that, then it's all worth it. The most dangerous places for trans people are in Central and South America nowadays. Though in North America, the number of trans people murdered is on the rise. Yeah, you know, I do think being big and muscular still has offered me a lot of safety. I did have one incident where I had five guys follow me into a parking garage a few years back, late at night after leaving a club. I was alone that night. The scary part was I had no idea they were even there until... I got to my car and I literally had stepped inside and just shut my door and there was a guy right in my window. I'm sure he could have grabbed me before I um, hopped in if he'd wanted to. And then there was four other guys right behind him. For anybody who's been in the circles, like have been in fights or, I mean, I grew up poor rural area and, and grew up, you know, getting into fist fights and stuff at school. It was a totally normal thing. And I know, you know, that how people look at you when they're looking for trouble. And these guys were definitely looking for trouble and I just quickly locked my doors and pulled out, and they just kind of all stared me down as I pulled away, but they never said anything. 
the crazy part was I didn't know where they came from. I didn't see them. I didn't know where they followed me in from. I had no idea they were even there. And that was the first time in my life I ever realized like, oh my gosh, I'm a target now too. So she's always on the lookout. In the back of my mind, there's always that little bit of, I try to be aware of my surroundings, you know, kind of read the crowd and just pay attention to if anybody's acting weird or sketchy or something seems off. Because you never know, you know, there could be that person out there that um, is looking to harm you. And for trans people just living their lives, there's always this specter of discrimination. Trans people are likelier to live below the poverty line and face unemployment and homelessness. They face discrimination in healthcare too, including refusal of care and mistreatment. Bills have been passed to make it harder for trans people to have equal access to resources, serve in the military, and more. It's no wonder the trans community suffers higher than average rates of clinical depression, anxiety, self-harming behavior, substance abuse, and suicide. Think of it this way. If everywhere you turned, it was made crystal clear that your kind don't belong here, you might experience some of the same things too. I come from the health and fitness industry, so I often look there for examples that then can be applied more broadly. So I asked Elena how some of the discrimination we just talked about might show up in that space. So I I imagine a scenario where like you go to a gym, let's say for the first time, and you're asked to fill out a form that doesn't recognize your sex or gender identity, right? So you're like, oh, okay, got to check male or female here. Then you got to go to the bathroom or get changed and there's nowhere for you to comfortably go. And then you go to meet your coach after you navigate this or just don't go to the bathroom. They don't really understand your experiences and icing on the cake. They use gendered terminology. That's a mismatch. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, I appreciate you pointing this out because like I have what's referred to as passing privilege, which is that you wouldn't know that I was trans unless I told you all of these things like checking female on a form, even before I formally transitioned, was not a big deal for me. I almost never got misgendered. That's just not a thing that happened to me. So I appreciate you pointing that out because that is 100% something that people experience. It's just so far out of my like recent experience that I forgot all about it. Let's say someone out there is listening and they're just like, hey, I, I want to do a better job to create a more sex and gender inclusive environment or friendly language or just be a more sensitive and decent person, what is sort of next for them? Like, what are some things they can do? Well, (laughs) trust that when people tell you something about themselves, that it's true. Like if they tell you something about their identity or who they are or how they want to be called, like if someone shows up and their name says Reginald and they're like, you know, please call me Reggie, you're not going to say, well, I'm sorry, you wrote down Reginald. I'm just going to call you Reginald. Why would you do that with with trans people? It's the same thing. Think about letting people define their own experience. And then the other thing is reality matters. The way that things really are matters. And that is what you should be using to make decisions. Here she means the evidence, the kind of information we're trying to explore in this series. Everybody has an emotional context that's wrapped around this understanding. It's a product of your experience. It's a product of your current mental state, how much you've slept, how much you've eaten, what your relationships are like. All of these things affect how you perceive things. 
But the way that things are matter. What is the evidence? Maybe the evidence is, I don't know. And we have to be okay with, I don't know. None of the second half of that was about trans people. It was about looking at the world. And I think that that's really important. I also spoke with Dr. Krista about why it might be important for coaches to give some thought to these issues. Because I've actually heard people say, I don't know any trans people. I don't plan on working with trans people. So this isn't really for me. Well, I mean, if we just think about straight up numbers, <laughs> you know, the number of people in the world who would identify as any of these categories that we're talking about is increasing as more people feel comfortable to come out and be honest about who they are and what they're experiencing and how they want to live their lives. As a coach, even if you're coaching who you think is like the squarest, you know, most boring, banal, normative population, if you coach long enough, you're very likely going to find a client or have a client that somehow falls into these groups that we're describing. It's just going to be a thing. What about as an environment? Let's say you run a gym or a, some kind of coaching environment, nutrition coaching center, whatever. What are the environmental things? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we, we don't often consider the issue of space and how people experience space and how that might affect people's perceptions of things. Examples of what can make all kinds of clients feel more welcome are things like, are there places where someone can go and change by themselves? This isn't just for trans clients. This can be for clients who, you know, maybe are a little bit more shy or, you know, people of certain religious faiths who have some kind of prohibition against, you know, getting naked in front of other people, right? In like a locker room or something like that. Are there individual shower stalls? Like, can people have a level of privacy for whatever reason that feels appropriate to them? That's, that's one really fairly easy piece. Are there little individual changing stalls or, or people forced to kind of differentiate themselves and then expose themselves publicly? Or are there places that they can go to discreetly do whatever they need to do with some level of dignity? Next, Dr. Krista talked about how, in general, things are getting a lot better. The older generation like, really suffered under these limitations and the pressure and the fear. I mean, they were very real risks to people. But now, shit, I mean, my niece is six and like, her teachers are already high-fiving her and like, good for you. We're going to support your individual unique expression. In our interview, Dr. Krista talked about how her niece generally shies away from typical little girl stuff and instead leans toward little boy stuff. What a massive change. And the other thing that's happening with younger people is they're really exploding the range of identities that you can have, uh, which I think is awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm very much like, let a thousand flowers bloom on this one. Like I, I would never, I mean, to go back, to circle back to our earlier conversation, why only have three categories? Like even three is constraining. But aside from social acceptance, she also talks about systems and structures, using disabilities as an analogy. My mind goes to what people might call like a critical disability analysis, which is that there are a wide range of disabilities that people can have. And in many cases, it's not so much the, the physical incapacitation that's there or, you know, the intellectual uh, incapacitation or disability or limitation or, you know, whatever the degree of it is. It's the lack of accommodation culturally and socially. And so, for example, think of Paralympic athletes, 
right? Some of the spectacular things, like wheelchair basketball blows my mind. That didn't exist 50 years ago, right? But we always had people with disabilities, especially active young people who might've been coming back from a war, who might've had some kind of injury or accident. So 50 years ago or more, let's say you would have people coming back from various wars who might've still been young, might've been young guys, you know, still still present in, all, in lots of ways, but maybe because they were missing a body part, society was like, well, sorry, <laughs> you know, I'm dusting off my hands here in the gesture, like you're all done. Sorry about your luck, buddy. But now it's like, hey, listen, there's a whole world that awaits you. And this is now we have this, this category of like adaptive athletics, Paralympic sport. All of a sudden, people with different bodies have all kinds of opportunities to do awesome shit that they never had before. So that's a, it forces us to radically reconsider. Now, the injury might be the same, right? You might still be an amputee, right? But it forces us to really think what's possible. And so in many, many respects, what limits a person is not so much any intrinsic factor that they have within themselves, but it is the opportunities that they have available to them or the structures, the social infrastructure that's there to support them. So really, this is sort of an analogy for how acceptance happens. In other words, for society at large to become more accommodating of, let's say, trans individuals, this isn't about individual people being nicer. It's probably about broader accommodations. Yes. And systemic changes. And with the Black Lives Matter, um, and I don't want to draw false analogies here. So I want to be really, really careful. I'm not saying these, you know, disability is exactly the same thing as trans issues is exactly, no, we want to be super careful about not saying that. But I think what a lot of these conversations around systemic racism, indigenous rights, land rights, essential workers in the face of the pandemic, like so many of these conversations that have been occurring in 2020 have revealed that what we're describing here is systemic and it's structural and it's like the things that make up our everyday life. And even things like, I look out my window and there's a sidewalk. Are there little curb cuts in the sidewalk to allow wheels to go over them, you know, when you're crossing the street, the sidewalk kind of dips down. So you can push a stroller, you can push a wheelchair, you can push a shopping cart, right? That's a little thing, but that's, you know, an example of these little, little structural things that make huge differences. So, I mean, of course, individual people being nicer to each other is always like a good goal. But what we're really describing is, I, I fundamentally conceptualize this as a human rights issue. And am I, as part of a society, enabling other people to live and thrive with dignity and, you know, to express their fullest potential. And if there are systematic and structural blocks to that, what are they and how can we clear them? And that probably doesn't happen until people are educated. I want to be able to educate people that don't understand. And I want to be able to hopefully inspire or at least offer a story that people can relate to for people that are like me. So it's really those two things. If someone's never met a trans person before, Janae is willing to be the first. She does a ton of this kind of outreach and was even the subject of an award-winning documentary, Transformer, all about her transition and how it played out in her personal and family life, as well as her role in the powerlifting community. I mean, as cliche as this kind of sounds, or maybe, you know, a little Pollyanna, but, but I, I just want to be able to make the world a better place for trans people, you know? I ask why she does it. Put herself out there. 
subject yourself to ridicule and hate. I think the biggest positive out of all this was being able to reach other people. And when I get messages or emails from people telling me that I help them come to terms with who they are and uh, try to say some of this without getting emotional, but having people tell you that, uh, you know, they didn't commit suicide or, you know, a father reaching out and telling you they didn't disown their child because of, you know, hearing your story. It's just like when you hear things like that, you know, how can you, how can you not be open about everything? How can you not want to, you know, bring visibility and, and want to help educate people? It's, it's just, you know, when you realize that impact you're having and, and um, you know, things like that have been amazing. And uh, I feel fortunate to be in a position where, you know, my story can help other people. This is where I'd like to end this series. Nowadays, we hear a lot about gender pronouns, whether to use he or she or they. We hear a lot about whether trans women should be allowed to compete against cis women in sport. We hear a lot about gender reassignment surgeries, puberty blockers. And from my perspective, it's simply too difficult to have a good opinion or even an intelligent conversation about any of these things without some fundamental knowledge of the basics of sex and gender. It's hard also to have a good opinion or intelligent conversation without hearing from different people, fellow humans, across the sex and gender spectrum. So again, that was my goal here, to upgrade my own knowledge and to pass on what I learned to you. Hopefully, after learning these things together and hearing these stories, we'll both be more equipped to have better opinions and better conversations for the benefit of everyone, including ourselves and the people we care most about. Before we end, I want to make sure you don't miss out on something. Editing this show was sad for me because I did in-depth interviews with each of the guests, most of them lasting 90 minutes or more, and we had to whittle them down, which means a lot of insights were left on the cutting room floor. However, we're making those full interviews available right now for you totally free at the Dr. John Barardi Show website. These interviews really are treasure troves of information, and to access them, as well as a transcript of this main episode, just pop over to www.drjohnberardishow.com. Also, one more thing. If you like what we're doing with the show, please consider reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Clicking that little subscribe button on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to us also makes a difference. So, reviewing and subscribing, it helps. A lot. Thanks for considering. Before signing off, I'd like to thank our production team, Marjorie Korn, my research partner and co-writer on the show, Martin D'Souza, our producer, Dylan Groff, who edited and sound designed this episode, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>